This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fadka. Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Surprise podcast. Mark, why are we here? Well, what the hell is going on is we're supposed to be on our August hiatus that we told you about in the last episode, but all I of a believe sudden- that's pronounced hiatus, Mark. Oh, yes, of course. Hiatus. Yes, that's, uh, that's for those of you who didn't get to the end of the last podcast, Danny and I had a great exchange on her strange Buckley-esque pronunciations of certain words. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. What is here or there is we're recording this on a Sunday and Speaker Pelosi is in Asia and possibly headed to Taipei, possibly not headed to Taipei. We don't know. This has been a huge, huge rise in tensions between the United States and China over the prospect of Speaker Pelosi visiting Taipei. I want to start out by saying that I am not a fan of Speaker Pelosi, but on this issue on China, she has long been outstanding. Uh, She is a strong opponent of the Chinese Communist Party. When you and I were working for Senator Jesse Helms in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and we were debating whether or not to allow China into the World Trade Organization, he was presciently correct that that would be a disaster. But she was right right next to him uh, in fighting that fight. Good, she's good on China, as the, as the phrase goes. And I hope uh, you know we don't know by the time this goes up whether she will know whether she has landed in Taipei or not. I hope she does. But this has been a catastrophe of incompetence in terms of the Biden administration, in terms of putting this out there before she even landed. Look, I think that Pelosi probably, shockingly, I think you probably overpraised Nancy Pelosi a little bit. She hasn't been as constant as as she should be for someone who cares as much as she professes that she does about China and about Taiwan and about freedom. You know, I, I am really bummed to think that someone who you know was the Speaker of the House and who professed to care so much about these issues was not the first to call out the Chinese on the question of what they were doing to the Uyghurs. It wasn't Speaker Pelosi. It was the Trump administration. So yes, she's way better than many, but she's not as good as she should be. I agree with you. I don't think any of the controversy here is about the fact that she's going. I don't think any of the controversy here is about the fact that she's trying to break precedents that have been set. I'm fine with all of that. I agree with you. It's basically the Keystone Cops show from the Biden administration. I don't know what's wrong with it. Well, I mean, that's a longer story. I don't know what's wrong with the president. There's a lot wrong with the president, but this this is a perfect example of it. So, you know, the truth is, is that the way this should have happened is that she should, one morning we woke up and turned on the news and there was Nancy Pelosi in Taipei. And she was off and on her way home before uh, Xi Jinping had even had his breakfast, right? And the reality is that's not happening because somebody, either in Speaker Pelosi's office or in the Biden administration or both, leaked the fact that she was planning to do this trip, which gave the Chinese an opportunity to turn this into an international crisis. And it's just 
utter incompetence. This got reported in the Financial Times. And then the president in a press availability like started commenting on how the Pentagon doesn't think she should go. And why are you talking about this? Why is this being discussed in the public domain? I work in the Bush administration. I was with Secretary Rumsfeld. You know, when a president goes into a war zone or a dangerous area, you don't announce it beforehand. There's operational security involved. They blew operational security over the trip, which puts her life in danger. You know, if the Chinese really wanted to like, you know, there's been rumors that they would intercept her plane or something like that. And, you know, then we'd have to have fighter planes escorting her and then the possibility of conflict. I mean, this is just it's it's Keystone Cops. It's utter incompetence. This this, this should have happened. It should have happened. We should be talking about it in the past tense, not whether or not she's going to go. We shouldn't even be having this podcast discussion right now. Okay, that you're right about that. And I don't know how the leak happened. I'm embarrassed for the president that he mumbled weird stuff about the fact that the, you know, that the Pentagon is against it. Dude, you are the commander in chief. You know, if someone asks you what you think, don't hide behind your secretary of defense. Have an opinion. That's part one. Uh, Part two of this is, I don't care what party our Speaker of the House is from, when a sovereign country threatens to shoot down a plane with our Speaker of the House on it, that is unacceptable. And what I wanted to see from the president was a full-throated defense, not a pleading, whinging call for two hours trying to talk Xi Jinping out of being mean to Nancy and threatening to kill her. Uh Uh-uh. Say, I'm not going to talk to you. Take that back. You may not threaten the Speaker of the House, the number three in line to, well, number two, actually, in line to the presidency. It It is an outrage. And the fact that we haven't treated it as an outrage says a lot more about the United States of America than it does about the Communist Party of China. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, but this is par for the course of this administration. So Joe Biden, on three separate occasions since he's taken office, has said that if China invades Taiwan, that the United States will come to Taiwan's defense. This was a change in policy. We've always had this policy, which I've never agreed with, of strategic ambiguity, which is that we don't we won't say what we'll do if China in, invades Taiwan. You know, that that's that's contrary to like the pr- the principles on which the NATO alliance was founded, which is if the, we told the Soviet Union if you invade Western Europe, we will come to Western Europe's defense and that held peace for for 60 years. It's the same thing on the Taiwan Strait, but he said the right thing. And then walked it back. So you ask, like, who's in charge over there? It's apparently not Joe Biden. I've said this so many times on the podcast. I'm sure people are getting bored of it. But weakness is provocative. Weakness makes it more likely that people are going to test your resolve and then you're going to have to step up and and prove them wrong. Better for them to know your resolve beforehand so that they don't test it than to test it and find it wanting or you have to do something that they thought you wouldn't do. They make, they'll make they miscalculate. But Joe Biden should have said to Xi Jinping, if you threaten the Speaker of the House or take any, if you send a plane anywhere near her plane, we will shoot your planes down. Period. Don't test me. Exactly. Don't, no, don't test me. That's 
that's the right thing to say. Any plane that comes within any distance of Speaker Pelosi's aircraft will be shot down by the United States military and you don't want it to go there. That's exactly right. Now, listen, I mean, this is how it should have been handled. And there are so many lessons here. There's so there's so much that we could get right and that we need to learn from this. I just hope we do. Listen, we decided to come out of our hiatus. I looked this up repeatedly trying to find a reason why I said hiatus. I was right. You were right. I was you right. Were right. <laughs> It pains me so much, but we, the reason we came out of this—I'm I'm very often, I'm very often right, but it's very rare that Danny admits that she was wrong. Very was right. gracious so of you, Mark. Thank you. The reason we came out of this hiatus was because this really is such a, a big issue. This really gives us a sense of what uh, it is that we are going to look forward to in the face of threats from one of our most formidable and dangerous enemies. And so we turn to a really good friend of both both of ours and of this podcast, Mike Gallagher, who is, uh, as I think all of you know, is a member of Congress. He represents Wisconsin's 8th District. He's on the Armed Services Committee. He served in the Marine Corps. He had a couple of deployments in Iraq. He worked for General Petraeus. He's a smart guy and a, a really a rising star in the Republican Party. We're so lucky that he took time off, literally, from looking after his daughter on a Sunday afternoon to chat with us today. Here's our interview. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be back. Am I a second timer, a third timer? Where am I on the rank the rank sheet right now? I, I, I don't know. You're at least three. Sounds right. Three is a perfect. Yeah, you need to make number. more friends. <laughs> Mark, Mark and I are lonely. <laughs> you couldn't find an actual Asia, China, Taiwan expert. So you're like, who's the least bad member of Congress? So I'm honored. <laughs> we are, you are, in fact, the least bad member of Congress in so many ways. That's why we love you. All right, Mark, go for it. So Speaker Pelosi, there's this whole hullabaloo about her going to Taiwan, not going to Taiwan. She's sent off for the region. What, what the hell's going on, Mike? Well, I guess to start, she she was supposed to go to Taiwan in April. Uh, I know this because I was supposed to go to Taiwan in April. And one of the reasons my trip got canceled or postponed is because the speaker's trip took precedence and I offered to go with and they didn't like that at the time. Uh, anyways, it got pushed because she got COVID. And then I want to say a week and a half ago, uh, someone, presumably someone in the executive branch, leaked that the speaker was going to Taiwan, uh, as I as I suppose, or as I guess, in an effort to prevent her from going to Taiwan, then the Defense Department said, this is a bad idea, it's dangerous, it's going to escalate, I'm paraphrasing, but basically General Milley said, hey, you know, we don't want her going right now. And then the president, President Biden, basically pointed to the Defense Department and said, well, you know, it's, it's Nancy's choice, but... Uh, the Defense Department thinks it's a bad idea. And now we don't know if she's going to go or she's not going to go. She put out a statement earlier today saying that she's leading a delegation, which I think is actually a purely partisan delegation, which is a mistake. I think she should have actually reached out to just like her, just like Ukraine. Exactly. Exactly. Why not bring some Republicans along? Uh, I would have loved to go. Um, and she said she's going to Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea and Japan. But we don't know if she's going to just kind of quietly hop on a bird and go to Taiwan and, and try and do the trip. I've urged her not to back down for a variety of reasons we could get into. Um, there's some other people suggesting based on 
um, Chinese state media that she's actually going to go ahead with the trip. But we don't really know right now if she's going to proceed to Taiwan or not. So she went to Ukraine and didn't announce that she was going. She just showed up in Ukraine. And people have been doing this for a long time. People just start showing all of a sudden you wait, turn on the news in the morning and there's Speaker Pelosi or Boris Johnson, whoever it is in Kiev standing with Zelensky. I've worked in the White House. I worked in the Pentagon. Like they don't announce when the president of the United States is going to a war zone. Why? Because you don't want to alert the enemy that he's coming. You want you want to get him in, do the trip and have him on the, in the air before they know what's happening and before they can mount any kind of response. So the fact that we're having this conversation, isn't this just a level of incompetence, that, that a further level of incompetence on the part of the Biden administration in leaking this out and having like a two-week discussion that allows China to get in a froth and possibly prevent this from happening? It's a complete uh, cluster Keystone Cops uh, operation. Um, now, I think we need to recognize that on some level, you know, the, the last speaker of the House to go to Taiwan was Newt Gingrich, I believe, in the 90s. So the reason people think this is a big deal is because she's the speaker of the House. That being said, we've had multiple congressional delegations recently go to Taiwan. We've had a, a cabinet secretary in the Trump administration go to Taiwan. And to your point, this is not an active war zone. Any American can get on a commercial flight and go to Taiwan. We have something called the Taiwan Travel Act, which explicitly says it's the policy of the U.S. government to foster interactions uh, and travel like this at all levels uh, of the government. And it's not like Pelosi is going to be parachuting off the, the back of a C-130, you know, with pallets full of howitzers and harpoon missiles. So uh, I think the, vi the, the visit is entirely appropriate. But now they're in a bind, right? Because I think it's fair to say if she backs down, uh, it, it makes us look weak. It makes us look that we've been deterred at the lowest level of the competitive escalation ladder with China. And I think it's right to raise the question that we can't let a congressional uh, trip go. If, if the Chinese Communist Party has a veto over the travel of our constitutional officers, then how are we ever going to get serious about actually arming Taiwan to defend itself within the next five years within the Davidson window. And so I think it undermines our deterrent posture for her to back down. And that's why I hope it doesn't, notwithstanding whatever risk there might be or whatever the, the CCP is trying to intimidate us or, or make us believe is the risk of her going. So first of all, thank you for joining us. We are delighted to have you back. I was taking a moment to get past the image that you conjured up of Speaker Pelosi jumping out of the back of a, of a plane with pallets of, of, of howitzers. I mean, I would totally love it if she did that. But let's zoom out for a second. It's been a while since we've talked about Taiwan on the podcast. And I think it would be useful for our listeners to understand just why this has become the sort of hot button issue that the Chinese are now trying to press and press again. So what should people understand that's most important? We have a pretty complex one China policy. What does that mean about Taiwan? What does that mean about China? Well, the one China policy calls for the peaceful resolution of, uh, as well as the spirit of the, the Taiwan Relations Act from 1979, repeatedly talk about, and we, it's been always part of our policy, and at least the CCP has, has paid lip service to it, that there would be a peaceful resolution of the Taiwan issue. It is my argument that even coercion that, well, one, militarization of the entire first island, uh, first island chain, you know, the East China Sea, the South China Sea is not exactly a peaceful act. And then increasing economic 
and diplomatic coercion, uh, and this is coercion, straight up coercion, does not suggest a, a good faith effort to peacefully resolve the Taiwan issue. So as your colleague at AEI, Dan Blumenthal, has pointed out, this is a violation uh, in spirit, if, if not in actual fact, of both the Taiwan Relations Act and the One China policy. I think the other thing that's important for people to understand, or at least what I believe uh, and what I think some smart people that aren't, that can't be considered you know, Republican hawks have pointed out, like another colleague of yours, Oriana Mastro, is that uh, the unification of Taiwan with the mainland uh, by force, if necessary, and she has said he'll do it by force if necessary, is the legacy issue for General Secretary Xi Jinping, who's 69 years old. And I think it's unrealistic to think that he's going to abandon his lifelong ambition. He's going into the 20th Party Congress in October. October of this year, I believe. He certainly does not want to look weak going into that. And I think we really enter what I would call a window of maximum danger um, starting in October or starting in January of 2024, which is when we'll have our next elections in Taiwan. They're likely to elect uh, a leader that is not explicitly pro-independence, but the closest thing to that in their history. And then, of course, we're going to have a messy presidential election in 2024 where we're going to be internally divided and distracted. And, and I just worry that that may be the moment at which Xi Jinping thinks, I'm never going to get another chance. Uh, I'm going to do this. And even though it's a very difficult military problem to solve, well, uh, what have I learned from watching my, uh, you know, my partner without limits in Ukraine operate? Vladimir Putin. Well, certainly he's, he's looked incompetent, but the Americans preemptively pulled their 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 troops uh, from the ground in Ukraine. They abandoned the Black Sea. They signaled they were only willing to deter with soft power, sternly worded statements and sanctions. And though Putin suffered some initial economic consequences, the ruble has recovered its value. The Europeans heading into a cold winter are going to be desperate for Russian energy. I just, there's been, a, I guess that's my last point. There's been a lot of happy talk about Oh, the, the success of the administration's strategy, what they're calling integrated deterrence in Ukraine, is forcing the Chinese to think twice about Taiwan. I don't agree with that at all. One, deterrence did not, in fact, succeed in Ukraine. And two, I think it's dangerous to start thinking that somehow we've also deterred Xi from his desire to uh, take over Taiwan just because the Russians have uh, experience some unexpected friction, if that makes sense. You're 100% correct. I mean, you know, you look back in July of last year, and Vladimir Putin issue, issued a manifesto saying what he was going to do in, in, in Ukraine, and, you know, basically explaining how they were uh, Ukrainians and Russians were one people, and he was not going to let them become part of the West, and he was not going to let the West use Ukraine as a platform against uh, Russia and all the rest of it. She has been as equally clear in his statements about Taiwan. You know, we just learned that Putin, we, we misjudged Putin, that he meant it when he said it. Why are we not making the same calculation when it comes to Xi and Taiwan? And why are we not preparing ourselves for that eventuality? I, I think, well, as, as part of this, uh, this strategy of integrated deterrence, and the basic idea is that you're going to you're going to be able to divest of legacy, conventional, hard power and and minimize the risk or make up the difference by better integrating non-military non instruments of power, new technology and allied power into American deterrence. Right. I mean, and, and there's nothing objectionable with the idea that we want, you know, the non-military tools and the military tools to be working together and all rowing their oars in the same direction. Of course, we want cutting edge technology. We want our allies to step up. We want to be on the same page with our allies. But 
I think this is a profoundly naive understanding of the world because ultimately without hard power and without a coherent strategy to deter by denial, because I don't think that's the other part of deterrence. I think they're misunderstanding. If you're solely relying on deterrence by punishment, i.e. if you do X, we're going to do Y, that doesn't work in Taiwan because by the time they have done X, by the time they've executed a fate, a complete strategy, the facts on the ground are, are, are so difficult to reverse that no amount of, of, uh, of punishment is going, to, uh, is going to change the situation. And more to the point, I think there are reasons to question whether we would truly be willing to escalate in our punishment uh, paradigm all the way up to a, the nuclear level. And even if we were willing to escalate through the use of the most powerful economic and financial weapons that we have, because in so doing, and, and in much greater degree than is the case with Russia, we would be hurting ourselves, right? Because we are so thoroughly economically entangled with China. And there are powerful, powerful interests in the United States, particularly in Wall Street, that would be arguing against taking severe economic steps. So uh, I, I just I, I think a lot of this has to do with a sense of complacency. The other thing I would highlight is I, I believe there's a divide within this administration on China. There are there is a group of people that have a more realistic view uh, that under that have tried to continue some aspects of the Trump administration's policy, keeping the genocide designation, um, um, keeping the so-called communist Chinese military companies list and expanding it in some places. But there's another camp in the administration led by John Kerry, which believes that climate change, not China, is our most prominent threat. And in some ways, that requires us to work cooperatively with the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that explains at times the incoherence of their policy, as well as their reticence to stand up to the coercion of the Chinese Communist Party. But maybe I'm being unfair. You can you can tell me if I'm, I'm being too mean. No, I, I don't think you're being mean. So the one thing I'll say uh, about this and, you know, our, our colleagues at AEI are actually divided over this because I think that one of the criticisms, and I, I don't even, it's not as strong as a criticism, but one of the cautions that they raise is that this affords China a very low cost opportunity to deter us. You know, along the lines of what you said, where really we have been looking forward to, and not in, the, not in a positive sense, to, to facing up to the challenge of what a Chinese invasion might mean, they are actually able to, you know, deter us just on this sort of, you know, visit by, by an elderly woman who, who happens to be a member of Congress. Um, I think that's, a, that's an important thing to understand, and I want to hear what you think about that. But the other thing I'd really like to hear from you is, is to play it forward a little bit. You know, okay, let's say that, let's say that, that we are deterred. What does this mean for Asia? What does it mean for Taiwan? What does it mean for what the Chinese are able to do? Because it's not just Taiwan, of course. It's the South China Sea and much, much more. Well, if the implication is that it's a, it's a low-cost opportunity to deter us, or, or the argument is that, and therefore we shouldn't do it, um, I, I really worry because I, I think that the risks are as great, if not greater, of allowing ourselves to be deterred. And I think that relates to your second question, right? Because I think the message it sends in Taiwan and, and throughout the Indo-Pacific is that America is afraid of provoking the Chinese Communist Party. 
and not willing to do what's necessary to prevent the uh, the continued uh, expansion of the power of the Chinese Communist Party uh, in the region. And so uh, I think we just have to weigh weigh the costs of of backing down against the the, the risks of 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 proceeding. And I ultimately believe I, I listen if if the CCP is going to uh, go to war because Pelosi went to visit Taiwan, which again, any American citizen can just hop on a commercial plane and go to Taiwan, provided you have an up-to-date passport. A huge issue, by the way, a lot of what my uh, my office deals with is out-of-date passports, public service announcement people, keep your passport up-to-date. If, if they really want to go to war over that, then I think it's fair to say that they were just looking for an excuse anyways, and they've just, that the war was inevitable, right? Um, I just don't think we can allow ourselves to yep. be guided by that fear. And so I do think it would undermine our deterrent posture throughout all of Asia. And particularly at a time when we're trying to, in a friendly but firm way, convince the Taiwanese to invest in their own defense in general and in asymmetric defenses in particular, potentially changing their reserve system to be more robust, uh, learn some of the lessons from Ukraine by purchasing and stockpiling more munitions, taking the harpoons, which aren't scheduled to get there until 2028, and moving Taiwan to the front of the foreign military sale line. As a At a time we're trying to do this, if we back down on this trip, I, I think the Taiwans will start to lose faith uh, in us because this is such a minor thing that does not violate by any stretch or interpretation any agreement or communique that we have with the People's Republic of China, if any of that makes sense. And also, though, isn't, you know, the Chinese saber rattling is very high right now, but their hope is that they could, if they invaded Taiwan, that we wouldn't respond militarily, that we would do a sort yes. of Ukraine type thing. If they if they provoke a fight over, you know, the, like intercept the speaker's jets going to Taiwan, a plane going to Taiwan or do something like that, isn't that almost pushing us into having to respond militarily? It seems like the strategic calculus for them is not very good to start a war over Pelosi's trip because we're more likely to have to do something that we don't want to do, that some people in the government don't want to do, if it's over this, as opposed to some other provocation or some other excuse, pretext. Yes. And I, and I would argue, well, two things. One, time, and this is a question that kind of preoccupied our, our strategists and, and our thinkers during the early years of the old Cold War, this question of whether time was on our side. Um, whether we had to engage on a massive crash program of mobilization, which kind of was represented in, in the latter sort of Truman strategy, NSC 68, or whether we could take a sort, sort of more um, uh, long-term approach or have a strategy for the long haul, as, as Eisenhower ultimately did. I, I would argue the same question uh, should be asked here, but time is not on our side. Um, we, are, we are heading into both a, a, a military crisis, we could already be in it in terms of readiness and lack of funding and, and general bureaucratic bloat combined with uh, what seems to be a, a severe erosion of our warfighting prowess and, and basic competence. At the same time, we could be seeing a debt crisis within this decade. Again, I don't see our politics getting any friendlier uh, over the next few years. And at the same time, the, the Chinese have set 2027 at the date as the date at which they will be capable of taking Taiwan. Uh, there are some people who think she could be moving that timeline up. I guess all I'm saying is that it looks like if you analyze both our pen, our Pentagon's plans as well as the the PLA plans, we are we are uh, on course to be weakest militarily when they are becoming strongest, and that's a very very dangerous moment. This uh, moment. Uh, the second thing I, I would say is that if you actually analyze past 
Taiwan uh, crises, uh, whether uh, they're the ones we had in the 90s or the two that we had uh, over Formosa in the 1950s, uh, it required us to do some very uh, dangerous things uh, and assume a lot of risk, threatening to use force uh, in, in many cases, it, it, even suggesting not so subtly that we might use nuclear force. Uh, that, that kind of is is the paradox of deterrence, right? In order to avoid war, you have to convince the other guy that you are willing to go to war. I'm not suggesting it's easy, but it requires it requires some intestinal fortitude that I'm not sure this administration has demonstrated. I mean, that's the really big question here, isn't it? So let's talk about this. I think all of us Princess Bride nostalgics think of this and think to ourselves, this is inconceivable, inconceivable that uh, that China would go to war over the speaker's visit to Taiwan if it happens. And of course, you know, maybe it doesn't mean what we think it means. Maybe inconceivable is not the right the right word. But let's say that they do do something aggressive. Uh, let's say that they do threaten. Let's say that they do step up. What is the right thing for us to do? Because I mean, this is a question of calibration for us, as you rightly say. If we're trying to meet them at the right part of the axis, where we're on the downswing and they're on the upswing, what's the right thing for us to do to show them that we're not putting up with this crap? Well, I think we have to, to slow them down, right? Uh, one, there was this big debate about this chips bill uh, this week. I, I would submit to you, it's not going to matter how much money we spend to build chip fabs domestically. If we don't really aggressively slow down, if not cut off entirely, the export of semiconductor equipment, which we still dominate, even though we don't dominate the manufacturing of the chips themselves, to China and also force uh, Taiwan and, and TSMC to start building outside of Taiwan. So we can slow them down when TSMC, it comes to TSMC is the Taiwan, Taiwan semiconductor, semiconductor the biggest semiconductor manufacturer in the world. It's why why uh, many Taiwanese uh, uh, think it refer to it as their silicon shield. As long as they're that dominant in in chips manufacturing, you know, that we will always come to their defense because if if the CCP had effective control over TSMC, they would be able to hold the rest of the world economically hostage. Uh, that, that's just the reality. Uh, there are other things we can do to slow them down, like cut off uh, the flow of U.S. capital to China. I think a good starting point would be to prohibit um, the endowments of, of universities, American universities, from being invested in uh, Chinese technology, all of which is dual use. And all of the companies that are in that space are at the beck and call of the Chinese Communist Party. So I guess there's one line of effort on things we can do immediately to, to prevent them from profiting off our money and our intellectual property. But the other thing I really, we've had a lot of happy talk in the last three years about we're going to arm Taiwan to the teeth. Taiwan must become a porcupine. Uh, but that has not been translated into reality. This is something that Congress, I think, can do even as we are awaiting the coming of an administration that is a bit better or more competent than this one. I believe we can work in bipartisan fashion to completely restructure our foreign military sales program to Taiwan, uh, uh, turning it into a uh, an assistance program modeled off the best pieces of what we did in Ukraine over the last decade. Um, we've given, in this year's NDAA, we have a variety of authorities to start changing the way we buy munitions. So I think I mentioned before, we've we, um, we, we've expended seven years worth of javelins in Ukraine. We don't have the ability to kind of uh, fill those stocks up again and send them to Taiwan. That's something we need a crash program for. 
right now. We need to find a way, if our strategy is to divest of conventional hard power in order to invest in new technology, okay, we need a hedging strategy that we can put in place in the next two years that makes the CCP think twice. And that involves a lot of missiles, anti-ship missiles, long-range fires, uh, both on Taiwan, on the, the southern Japanese island, and on the northern Philippines island. That should be the top priority of the Secretary of Defense, not climate change, not diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's what we need a crash program for. That's where we need to sort of run the the Secretary Gates MRAP playbook, where he just used existing authorities and said, this is my top priority. Make it happen, defense industrial base. Make it happen, Pentagon. And anybody who stands in my way, I'm going to get personally involved, and I'm the Secretary of Defense. So let's make it happen. One of the differences between uh, Ukraine and Taiwan is that uh, Ukraine has a border that Russia could just pull up, uh, load its tanks and its military on the border and cross in. China has to get across the Taiwan Strait, which is not a necessarily an easy feat, and it makes it a little bit uh, more challenging militarily for the, for the Chinese military. Have we given Taiwan and do we have deployed in the region the kinds of capabilities that can deny China the ability to cross the Taiwan Strait and land in Taiwan? I mean, I, I guess my short answer would be no. I mean, our asymmetric advantage, we have some asymmetric advantages like our undersea capability. Uh, but again, for precisely the reason you lay out, uh, it's it's geographically hard to take over Taiwan, but geographically difficult to resupply it. We just don't have the 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 stockpiles or the logistics footprint necessary to maintain a war for longer than three or four weeks. So that's precisely why they either want to win without fighting or rapidly consolidate uh, their gains. In many ways, maybe the lessons she is learning from Putin is that if you're going to go for the the fait accompli, shock and awe, blitzkrieg. You, you got to go all the way. Uh, there are no half measures. Half measures get you killed uh, in war. And that's that's really what worries me. It's why another thing, uh, or I guess two other things that I think we could do in the short term that would allow us to push, push the invasion date out a few years. Um, one would be to actually have a coherent war plan. Uh, I've, I've been searching in vain for it for six years. Uh, the Pentagon tells me it exists. I, I've not seen one that I find convincing. And second and related is to proactively seek the authorization from Congress to use force if the Chinese decide uh, to move. Because I think it's very unlikely that Congress would go into emergency session or pass such an AUMF in time for the president to uh, respond. Now, the president could, of course, decide that he has all the unilateral uh, Article II authority he needs. But I don't know. I think we could enhance our deterrent posture by providing an AUMF on the front end, I would go further and say that we should clarify the policy of strategic ambiguity. So there is no doubt as to whether we would defend Taiwan. But admittedly, there are people that are much smarter than I who, um, if they don't agree with that, they don't, they don't think it's that important. For example, Matt Pottinger has suggested that strategic ambiguity matters far less than strategic capability, what is actually on the ground, the weapon systems, both we, the Taiwan's, and the Japanese have in place. So, but those are a few areas in which I think we could start to get at that problem. I mean, Biden has said the right things on strategic ambiguities and then like the White House walked it back. He said it three times that we would come to their defense. But if you don't have the capability to back it up, then it's just words, right? <laughs> and so one of the best things that Donald Trump did when he was president was he pulled us out of the INF treaty. Uh, and I, I think that uh, one statistic I saw was from, I think from Jim Stavridis is that 
that uh, something like 80% of China, China's missiles would violate would have violated the INF treaty if they had been a party to it, but they weren't. And so, it, but now as a result of that, we have the ability to deploy intermediate range, range conventional weapons, conventional missiles in in the Asia Pacific that we weren't allowed to do before. Do you see any signs that we're that we're deploying that kind of capability? Because that's the capability you need to deny them the ability to cross the Taiwan Strait. That's it. I mean, that's the long range fires crash program that I'm talking about. That that's like that needs to be tattooed on the head of every general and flag officer in the Pentagon, every service secretary, and every future secretary of defense. Uh, getting out of the INF treaty, I think, was could have been, with the possible exception of the Abraham Accords, one of the biggest accomplishments uh, of of the foreign policy team. Uh, in the in the Trump administration, but we just haven't attacked it with a sense of urgency. Um, the other thing uh, related to what we're talking about is my understanding is there's 14 billion dollars worth of delayed uh, uh, defense equipment that Taiwan has wanted to purchase but has not been delivered. Uh, why is that? What what is what is the holdup? What is the bottleneck? That's questions that we in Congress can force the administration. To answer, to answer right now. Um, but again, uh, there's I, I don't know if it's fear that's governing our actions, but um, there's just a, a complacency uh, on this issue, which I I don't understand. And finally, we've seen this playbook multiple times uh, before. Right. What would be the best example? So in 2012, Japan bought the, the Senkakus and then China, you know, screamed and cried and used it as an excuse to militarize the East China Sea. We did nothing about it. And then we found ourselves in a in a much worse situation. Um, another example, when Trump called, maybe accidentally, <laughs> didn't seem like it was that coordinated. Uh, during his transition, he called President Tsai in Taiwan. And at the time, the CCP was freaking out and saying and basically saying kind of what they're saying now, which is like, you're 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 playing with fire. Right. And this is what she told Biden, allegedly three days on the phone, that he who p- plays with fire shall get perished by it. Um, this is part of their playbook. They either seize opportunities to have an excuse to change the status quo and force us uh, to back down, or or they use it to intimidate us. And we've just seen over the past decade a consistent weakening of our deterrent posture. It's time to push back. Otherwise, we're going to stumble into a war, and we're going to lose that war either through preemptive surrender or battlefield defeat. So exit question from me. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't want to be cheap in asking this question, uh, but it actually, uh, yeah, no, I know, really. I won't uh, go I there. No, but but seriously, oh. um, yeah, t- shut up, <laughs> Mark. You are the worst. I, I'm um, admittedly very a very cheap human being. Uh, so you okay, so did Speaker Pelosi handle this correctly? Did, is she doing the right thing? Well, I, I want to give her the opportunity to proceed forward. I, I guess if it's revealed and maybe it will never be revealed that it was her team that leaked it. And the only um, the only motivation I could see would be this would be part of her legacy. I mean, let's be honest, she's not going to be speaker come January of 2023. Uh, and I, again, I, I disagree with Pelosi on almost everything. I think she's been a terrible speaker of the House and I will shed no tears when she leaves. On this issue, she actually has a pretty consistent track record. I mean, she was in Tiananmen Square at the beginning of her congressional career unfurling pro-democracy banners. She's proven a willingness to criticize uh, and anger the Chinese Communist Party, which I I support. So if she finds a way to go forward, and if, as I suspect, we realize that 
the only the, the Chinese uh, don't go to war over it. I, I will commend her for that decision. Uh, and I, I wish she would have reached out to a um, a group of Republicans to go with her. I think that would have sent a powerful signal. But if, on the other hand, you know, it was her team that leaked it or some combination of her team and the executive branch, I mean, they've created a problem where there didn't need to be a problem if the trip had, had just been handled with better uh, security exactly. uh, and with better diplomatic discretion. Well, Mike, I wish you were on that trip with her and I wish you were in a position of responsibility in the executive branch where you could be making these decisions, but maybe you will be one day because for a uh, congressman, you're quite a grand strategist. <laughs> and uh, well, I, 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 find, I find myself potty training a two-year-old in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So whatever that, the opposite is, is of, of playing brinksmanship with the CCP, I, I'm engaged. That is outstanding preparation yes. for, for uh, high office. <laughs> in the, in the very policy. messy uh, uh, situation. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much, Mike. It's always a pleasure. You were awesome. Thank you, guys. You're the best. You know, Gallagher is like a grand strategist. This is a super smart guy who's got a huge future in our national security establishment. I would not be surprised to see him as Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State one day. And we got a glimpse of that here. But you know, one of the things that he pointed out, which I think is worth exploring, is the fact that you know Joe Biden got rid of the strategic ambiguity. He was forced, uh, opposed to strategic ambiguity before he was uh, in favor of it again. But we don't have the technology or the or the weaponry in the region to back that up right now. We have not done the things that we need to do, one, to arm Taiwan so that it can defend itself properly. The lesson of Ukraine 100% is that get the weapons in early <laughs> before, before the invasion, because it's a lot easier to do it then. And two, we don't have the capabilities of our own in the region that are needed to deter China from invading Taiwan. And so they may not be in a hurry because they don't see us doing anything. But the longer we wait, the harder it gets to deter the Chinese from actually taking the step that Vladimir Putin took and launching the, an effort to reunify what they both see as, as runaway provinces. The thing that strikes me most forcibly about all of this is that we've been talking about this for so long. Do you remember in the Obama administration, why were we abandoning Iraq? Why were we ignoring Russia? It was because of the infamous pivot. Remember the pivot? <laughs> All of this that was going to be our new focus on China. All right. You know, let, let's let's say that they didn't do as good a job as they promised they were going to do. But then in the Trump administration, they also talked about the importance of moving towards a more focused policy on China. Then there's the Biden administration, which has been in office for almost two years. And has not done enough. So all of the things. Okay, well, don't throw the. Out. No, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, I'd, they, I'd say something bad about King Trump. No, you. Okay, Donald Trump provided more weaponry to Taiwan in four years than Barack Obama did in eight. Okay, we he he, yes, he, he, yes, did, he, he did he did a lot when it came to confronting China uh, and strengthening Taiwan. Mark. So don't throw them in the same but in the Mark, same category. But Mark, yes, okay, and you know, I I love Matt Pottinger, and I love all of the guys who worked exactly. Asia in the in the Trump administration. But Mark, at the end of the day, we are the United States of America. More than ten years ago, we decided that China was a strategic adversary, and 
even to this day, we do not have the necessary investment and we do not have the necessary military equipment in the region. And no president of the United States can skirt the blame for that. We needed to do more. And the fact is that that. we can't we can't put our money where our mouth is. The president of the United States should tell Xi Jinping to get stuffed or else. But he can't back that up. That is shameful. Well, that's a doable thing. I mean, again, one of the things that Donald Trump did do, Mike agrees with me, is one of the most important things he did as president is pull out of the INF Treaty. And what the the INF Treaty, for people who are not familiar with it, is a treaty between the United States and and the Soviet Union, which barred both conventional and nuclear land-based missiles with a range of 300 to 3,400 miles. And so we could not, because of our treaty with Russia, we could not deploy intermediate or medium range missiles in the Pacific theater to deter China because of our agreement with Russia. China was not a party to the INF treaty, so they have tons of intermediate range missiles which they can use. And so our only deterrence other than our aircraft carriers and and subs and other things like that, our only missile deterrence was nuclear long range ICBMs, uh, which we don't want to have to use. And so one thing that Donald Trump did do is get rid of the INF tree, which means that there is nothing stopping us from giving Taiwan uh, intermediate range munitions, missile launchers, drones, anti-ship weapons, you know, thing, and there's nothing stopping us from deploying those in Guam and Japan and the Philippines and other places in the region. And why is that important? Because Taiwan is an island. And so in order to invade Taiwan, it's hard to get to. You have to cross the Taiwan Strait. And the way you stop the Chinese from crossing the Taiwan Strait is with intermediate range missiles. And so we need to be making sure that the Taiwanese have those and that we have them in the region. What will deter China is not what Joe Biden says. It will be whether they don't believe that they can cross the Taiwan Strait and get on land in order to invade and occupy Taiwan. If they think that we have the capability to deny them that ability, then they won't do it or they'll be less likely to do it. That's what we should be doing. And that's what that's what we're not doing today. Well, Mark, let us end on this hopeful note. You just said something smart. And I agree with you. Oh, my God. Oh my gosh! <laughs> alert, oh, just for the record, just for the record, people, in a in a single podcast, we have had from Danny. Mark, you said something smart, and Mark, you were right, and I was wrong. I I am just stunned. I I think we should we should probably just stop here. I mean, the podcast <laughs> is over. We don't even have to do another episode. A <laughs> victory, victory is achieved, mine. We have achieved peak. What the hell is going on? Peak. What the hell is going on? <laughs> Alrighty. We can't we can surpass this. Folks, okay. We're we're returning now to our to our hiatus. <laughs> and we'll see you all in September. Hiatus. Thanks for listening. We'll see you after our hiatus. <laughs> Bye. Bye everyone. Take care. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at what the hell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 